according to the National Council on Aging, approximately one in 10 Americans aged 60 and up have experienced some form of elder abuse. It is estimated that as many as 5 million elders are abused each year. However, only one in 14 cases are reported to authorities. Welcome to the Stand Fight Wind live stream, Real Lawyers, Real Answers. I'm Keith Davidson. I'm Stuart Albertson. And we are a couple of real lawyers. This is being broadcast live on YouTube and Facebook. You can see the live broadcast on either of those platforms. You can also go to Facebook and YouTube to see a recorded version of this live stream after we're done recording. You can also find an audio-only version at Podbean. In today's Stand Fight Win live stream, we are talking about financial elder abuse, a huge epidemic, something that we face constantly in our cases. And of our cases that we currently have pending, Stuart, what percentage of cases do you think have financial elder abuse claims associated with them? Well, of the trust contest cases or will contest cases we have, I would say 90% plus of them. Yeah, easy, right? right. So almost 90% of our cases have some financial elder abuse aspect to it one way or another. That's correct. So let's kick things off by going to our breaking news segment. And we'll talk about a recent appellate case that came out dealing with financial elder abuse. And this is kind of an interesting case just because it deals with the type of help that you can go after if you are an elder or if you have an elder who's being abused, and that's um, an injunction. So part of our financial elder abuse laws, you can actually go and get an injunction to stop people from abusing elders. Wait, what's the name of the case, Keith? Oh, uh, yeah. And this case is Jude Darren versus Sandra Miller, and this is out of Lake County. So that's out of the Appellate District Division Two, First Appellate District Division Two, And it has to do with Jude Darren, who is age 81, and her neighbors were really harassing her, apparently. Uh, they were intimidating her by taunting her, threatening her, twice removing a boundary fence between the properties, trespassing onto her property where they destroyed a hedge and defaced and damaged a barrier fence. Uh, they threatened They threatened her and her spouse and her grandson, and they let their dogs menace her unchecked. And the boyfriend ordered the dogs to kill her, apparently, is what they told her. So not, uh, not good neighbors. And so she went in, hired a lawyer, and tried to get an injunction under the elder abuse laws. And the court denied it because the court said, well, there's no connection between the neighbors and the elder. In other words, there wasn't any type of obligation that the neighbors had to care for the elders. And so it went up on appeal and the appellate court reversed. And the appellate court said, well, there doesn't have to be a connection. So anytime under the, uh, this is Welfare and Institutions Code Section 15610.07, and the definition of mental suffering is defined as fear, agitation, confusion, severe depression, or other forms of serious emotional distress that is brought about by forms of intimidating behavior, threats, harassment, and it's it's a very wide net and it can be brought against anybody. So if anybody's doing those things to an elder, there doesn't have to be any type of connection between the elder and the abuser to go in and get an injunction. And really, there's another part of the code section that I think the trial court misinterpreted, and that is if you have an obligation to care for an elder and you neglect them, that's also elder abuse. But here it's not a matter of neglect. It wasn't that somebody had an obligation to do something and neglected that duty. It's that they were actively harassing an elder person. 
And so the appellate court said, no, that's, that is elder abuse under the financial elder abuse laws or under all the elder abuse laws. And so they can be enjoined from doing that. So that was the case of Darren versus Miller. You know, it's interesting. I've never thought about it. Uh, the financial elder abuse statute, it, it was a wide open road when it was first passed by the legislature. And it seemed like anybody could file a case on behalf of an elder. Mm -hmm. And now the courts have really restricted who can file on behalf of an elder. But now we have an elder who's actually using an act to protect themselves. And what a, what a great idea, a financial elder abuse act that protects somebody from this type of behavior. And you've got, you know, as people get older, I know your mom's older, my mom's older. Can you imagine if a next door neighbor told your mom that they were sicking their dogs on them to kill them? I mean, I'd want to go and rip these people's heads off, of right? Of course, yeah. And so now there's this civil remedy, and it's a great civil remedy, and people can go in. And, and I'm so glad that you found this case, Keith, because I think we can start using it going forward in some of our cases. Yeah, it's interesting because usually by the time we get on the scene, the elder, typically the elder's already passed away. So there's, you can't go in and get an injunction. It, the damage is done, right? But even if the elder hasn't passed away, how often do you see people using injunctions under the Elder Abuse Act? Not that often. I don't see it that often. Well, and, and if we had represented this individual and they'd come in and I hadn't had a chance to see this case and they said, hey, can I stop this behavior of my neighbors? I would say, yes, we'll bring a restraining order and, and we'll ask a court to issue a temporary restraining order and then we'll have an injunction hearing down the road which may still be an option that yes. you can do, but now you have this to back it up as well for anyone that is 65 years or older, and that's fantastic. Yeah, it's really nice that the appellate court was able to clarify this particular point. And we don't do a whole lot of injunction work because, like I said, normally, well, there's two situations. Either the elder's already deceased and we're, we're enforcing the elder laws, but post-death, or the elder doesn't have capacity to be able to do something like that. They're under somebody else's thumb, right? Right. Right. Coercion. So yeah. what are you going to do there? Right. So what would you do there, by the way? So, you know, brother comes in and, and uh, says, my sister has is abusing my mom, but it's kind of under mom sister's thumb. Well, and, and these are the hard cases. In fact, we did a consult earlier today uh, before our, our uh, live cast here. And you have where mom is still living and has the ear of the bad child. It's very difficult because if you bring a petition for conservatorship against, uh, it's essentially against your mom because you're asking the court to declare that she can't take care of either herself, her person, or her estate, or both. And so you're essentially saying mom doesn't have these capabilities. What bad sister will do is say, can you believe that, that your child has filed this against you? They're trying to take away your capacity, mom. And then mom may go ahead and change the trust or the will and disinherit the person that's actually trying to help them. Right. And so it's a very difficult place to be. We typically advise that people just simply do the best they can with their parents while they're still living under those difficult circumstances. And then after they've passed, there's some things we can do to remedy some of the damage that's been done. Right. And that actually gets into some of the questions that we'll be answering today. We've received some questions. Let's go on to our next, next segment, Asked and Answered. We have received some questions from people. We, we receive a lot of questions from people, actually, that touch on elder abuse because it is prevalent in so many of our cases. Like we said, 90% of our cases have some form of financial elder abuse claim in them. Um, whether we're filing in probate court or civil court, we're filing these claims constantly. So why don't we start with our first question, uh, Kayla, if you can start us off. What are some of the ways that elders are financially manipulated, both in life and after death? 
So this is very interesting, I think, question to answer because if you look at financial elder abuse, it really comes down to a taking. That's what, that's what the whole, if I can boil it down to one word, it'd be a taking. You're a bad taking, taking. Yeah, bad taking. You're taking from an elder that you shouldn't be. Right. It's, it's like stealing, I guess. Right. Asking them for loans that you don't in, intend to pay back, asking them to buy their car for $1,000 when the car's worth $50,000. Yeah, and I think that's the interesting difference is that you could have a taking by, I just open up your wallet and take money, and that's just theft, right? Right. And that's a taking. But there's also a more devious way of taking that we deal with on a regular basis, and that is dressing up the taking as legitimate. Correct. And so how do you dress up a taking as a legitimate thing? Well, you, you start putting in bogus documents, and you start doing these powers of attorney, and you start doing these bogus sales, like you just mentioned, you know, selling a car. I had a case years ago where an elder supposedly sold real estate to a corporation, and... Uh, they did it for a sweetheart deal. I mean, it, it sold for 10% of what its actual value right. was. But once we you draw back the curtain and you start the lawsuit, the other side says, well, this is what the elder wanted, and they're the one who set the purchase price. And this is, you know, we're just doing what they wanted. It was a gift. It was a gift. It was a right. gift. Yeah, I paid a little bit, but it was a gift. So let's talk about some of the ways in which people are able to legitimate, make their taking legitimate. Okay. Uh, I would think the, the one way we see all the time is they'll get uh, a bad, bad actor will get mom and dad to change their longstanding estate plan. So they'll go out and hire, usually not the family attorney that's been doing the estate plan for the last 20 years. They'll go hire some lawyer uh, that has a very uh, dark lit, darkly lit office. <laughs> and that lawyer for a grand fee of $1,500 will transfer millions of dollars in value by way of a trust amendment or a codicil to a will or make this person the power of attorney and give them the right to change the trust or the will for a very small amount of money. And it looks legitimate because you have a document, you have a lawyer that's involved, that lawyer's gonna show up to the deposition and testify, this is what mom wanted. And so that's the one we see time and again. And what's the problem? Like once you have a document and the parents signed it. It's presumed to be valid. I mean, it's presumed valid, that's crazy. Yeah. I mean, think about that. So that's. It's a presumption that you now have to fight against. Right. And, and to make it even worse, if it's usually a, let's get a, get a step aside from the caregivers or the non-family members that are the bad actors. Let's go to family members that are the bad actors, like one of your siblings is doing this. What they'll do to make this even worse is, let's say there's a, a $5 million estate. They'll give you and your brother a million dollars each and give themselves the remaining three million, and then they'll back it up with a really strongly worded no contest clause. Right. And so now you are under the current fraudulent document, you're entitled to a million each. Are you willing to risk that by filing a trust contest that's gonna trigger the no contest clause? Where you could be out everything. And you could be out everything under the right set of uh, facts and circumstances. So you can really be set it up to create an incentive to not wanna fight that. Well, and what's interesting about that, Keith, is that you know I, when I went to law school, I didn't, I didn't understand, and some people would even say to this day, I don't understand how to be a lawyer, but I didn't <laughs> understand how to apply facts to law and law to facts. And I think in my third year, the light bulb went off and it seemed so simple to me and I wondered why couldn't I get that in my first and my second year? We come across people that are non-lawyers, have never gone to law school and they have this whole game figured out 
Yes. If they were to put their mental use to actually doing something positive in this world, they would be very really successful. Yes, right. yes. But they're very good at being devious. And so now you've got these documents in place. And part of the problem, too, when they go to the new lawyer is it's not necessarily the lawyer doing something nefarious. The lawyer could think that they're doing something perfectly fine because let's say they go to the new lawyer and the new lawyer says, well, I'm going to have to talk to mom by herself. And so step out of the room, you know, bad actor, so I can talk to mom. And mom's going to say, yep, that's what I want because she's been preconditioned. It's already in her head. Right. Because of the undue influence. That's right. So let's talk a little bit about what is undue influence because in our line of work, in our financial elder abuse claims, the way that people are stealing assets from elders is usually they're trying to make it look legitimate by putting together documents. And they often are taking these assets after death because that's the way to make it look legitimate, right? Because if I didn't get it during life, but I get it as part of the trust or will after death, well, I didn't steal it. That's what mom or dad wanted. And the decedent's no longer here to tell us what they truly Otherwise, wanted. Otherwise, yes. So, so by and large, that's being done through the use of undue influence. Yes. So let's talk a little bit about what is undue influence. All right. So how would you define undue influence? Undue, if I wanted to unduly influence you, I would take what I wanted and I would put it into your head and you don't want that necessarily. And right. I would get you to do what I want you to do. Right. And so I would do it with excessive persuasion. And that's kind of the, the, the idea behind it is, is that I'm making you, but for me, exercising undue influence over you, exercising what I want you to do, you would not be doing these things. Right. And that is undue influence. Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it. It's, it's literally replacing the decedent's intent with your own. And so there's four elements to that, legally speaking. So you have to have an elder who is susceptible to undue influence. You have to show that there was actions and tactics that people would use to perpetuate this undue influence. The bad actor. What did they do to do these things? That's right. Yeah. And then you have to show apparent authority. So the bad actor has, has to have some sort of connection with the elder. A child. A child. Family member. An agent under a power of attorney, a trustee, right. one of those things. Caregiver. Uh, and then you have to show that the result was inequitable. It was unfair. That's right. Which... That's really usually the easiest part because typically you'll have a long-standing estate plan where the kids take equally, and then at the very end, it goes somebody else. Right. And so obviously there's something wrong there. So what do you think about – so we know that primarily elders are manipulated by people taking their assets. You try to – these a lot of bad actors try to dress it up by making it look legitimate. And so what are we to do about these things? So how are you going to prevent somebody from taking advantage of your parent, either during life or after death? So let's start with during life, which you touched on this a little bit earlier. But well, it's a petition for conservatorship, but it's got a whole host of problems that run with it. So you can go in, you can, you can file for conservatorship, try to get a conservator appointed, and you have to do that even if they have a trust. So that's the, that's the crazy thing is that even though they have a trust, if the bad actor is the trustee because they got a new amendment that appointed them trustee, you're still going to have to go to court on a conservatorship. So what's the problem? What's the number one problem with conservatorships? Well, if mom and dad have has any capacity whatsoever, they're not going to be happy about the fact that you're asking a court to take away their ability to make decisions for themselves. Nobody in this world from even a three-year-old kid that wants to learn how to tie their shoe right wants to take orders from anyone else, and they want to do it themselves. And if you think about it, most of these elders have lost their right to drive. 
They've lost other rights along the way as they've gotten older. And now this is kind of like, wow, you're going to take everything away from me. And they don't care who's doing that. They're going to be upset about the fact that somebody is trying to take their rights away. Whereas the person that's trying to do this is actually trying to help them to protect them against the bad acting person. But that bad acting person who's so good at this, they're going to turn that they're going to use this event to turn mom or dad against the person that's trying to help them. It kind even of plays more. into their hands, doesn't it? It plays into their hands so nicely. And then mom and dad are offended because the bad actors can say, I can't believe that Keith is trying to do this right. to you. I mean, you clearly know what you're doing, and aren't you giving them something in your estate plan? Wow, I wouldn't give them anything if that were me, and that's undue influence, right? Right. And actually plays in their hands because, like, this is what I've been talking about. I told you that they're only after your money, and here they are suing to try and get conservatorship over you. It's exactly what I told you they were doing. Right. Mom, you should have all the money for yourself. We should spend it all on you, and I can't right. believe they're trying to get your money. And this is where the greedy heir issue comes up. The person that's actually trying to help is made out to look like a greedy heir. And by the way, these actions will be revisited even in post-death because— if a trust contest is filed, you can bet the bad actor is going to inform their lawyer of all the things you, uh, the good actor, did to try to help mom and point it out as you were being a greedy heir, trying to keep the money from being spent and so forth. Okay. So wh- how about after death? Because after death, now there becomes a difference in terms of what can be done, right? Well, a lot can be done. Why don't you attack this one? A lot can be done after after death. And, of course, we tell clients we can do a whole lot more for you after someone dies. We never hope they die. But once they die, what are the things we can do for them? Well, and the difference is vested rights. So once a parent dies, now the child has rights to these trust and will issues directly. It's their rights. It's no longer the parent's rights. So while the parents are alive or whoever we're talking about, the elder, while the elder is alive, it's the elder's rights. And so the elder has to enforce them. Well, the elder can't enforce them because they're lack capacity or they're under the bad actor's thumb or whatever the problem is. That's why you have to do conservatorship. But after the elder is deceased, now their heirs, their children, whoever it is that, that should be rightfully receiving their inheritance, they take over those rights. Right. And so the interesting thing is that the right to sue for elder abuse doesn't go away just because the elder dies. And that's fortunate. I mean, that's a good thing. Well, what's the statute of limitations on elder abuse? Three years? It's four years. Four years. Yeah. So you have a huge window within, and the typical statute, just for reference, is around two years, right? right? Personal injuries, Personal two injury. years. Yeah. And and so I, I think- Most fraud claims are three years. Three that's why years. Three years. That's right. four years. Yeah. So four years is a long statute of limitation. And the thing, the great thing about it is, is that just because the elder passes doesn't mean that the elder abuse didn't happen. And it doesn't mean that there's not a way to correct what happened. I mean, you can't bring the elder back, unfortunately. So if there was physical abuse, that's something that you really can't do much about. But the financial abuse, you can. You can make those things right in the eyes of the law, at least. But you have to be a successor in interest to do it. And that's the, that's the tricky part. So if you're completely disinherited, can you bring a financial elder abuse action against, because of actions that some bad actor took against your mother? Depends on what court I'm in. Yeah, yeah, the answer could be no. And we've we've seen it go both ways, right? So yes. there's some courts who will say no, you have to uh, you have to receive some something of value, some right. money. Right. And if you're completely disinherited. Which is circular reasoning, because if you right. win the trust contest, then you would receive value. And right. so, you know, it causes problems here. And so you know, I guess the one way I'll view this in the next time we run across this with a court is, well, let's stay the financial elder abuse. Don't make a decision there. 
let us have the trust contest and then we'll figure out if we are in that position. But the court may say, no, no, you need to be in that position today. And if you're not in that position today, then you can't bring the financial elder abuse. Uh, and at a count. minimum, you have to bring a trust contest. So you have to show that you're trying to become your, the rightful heir under the trust. Right. And then once you have the trust contest, you can also bring financial elder abuse right. cause of action, which is a separate, completely separate cause of action, right. whole different code. Right. Uh, welfare and institutions code versus probate code. By the way, fun fact, a trust contest is going to be a bench trial. Right. But a count for financial elder abuse, even if made in the probate court, doesn't matter where you make it, that has a right to a jury trial. Because it's a whole different code. That's right. And, it's, and uh, it is interesting because if you can show that you're trying to become an heir of the trust, most courts will allow your financial elder abuse claim to stand. But you do have to have some claim of right, some successor and in interest rights to bring a financial elder abuse claim. But once you have that... Now you can stand up, you're, you're essentially standing up into the shoes of the elder, and you can make things right. So whatever was taken during life, whatever was taken, well, not all of life, but whatever was taken near the end of life, and whatever was done with the estate plan can now be corrected, and that makes it just that much easier. It's still, though, in our experience, we're typically doing undue influence claims. Um, that's just the means by which we prove financial elder abuse. But let's talk a little bit about what a taking is specifically, because we've had some cases where people, the opposing attorneys, will file a demur against us trying to end the lawsuit, and they'll say, well, there wasn't a taking because my client, the bad actor, not my client, their client, the bad actor, we don't represent bad people. We only <laughs> represent good people. Uh, anyway, the other side will say it wasn't a taking because there was nothing taken during the elder's lifetime. I mean, yes, they're, they're getting everything after death, but there is no taking because I didn't take anything while the elder was alive, therefore I'm innocent. What's your response to that? Well, a taking, there's actually a definition for a taking, and if you look at the definition in the statute and in the jury instructions, taking by a trust or a will is considered to be a taking. And so that is a taking. And it happens, even though the effect doesn't take place until after death, the taking did take place during the decedent's lifetime. And it has to be that way, because if you didn't have the fact that a taking can also be by trust or will, that'd be a huge hole to the statute. Right. To get around elder abuse, all, all you, you have, have to, to do... Just have to dress it up, yeah. put, put lipstick on a pig, and you're good. Right. Something that's interesting is when you talk about a taking, the statute also talks about assisting in a taking. Oh, yeah. And we're waiting for the right case to come along. And so bad lawyers out there, bad drafting lawyers out there, beware. Uh, if we find that a lawyer knows that these bad behaviors are taking place, that bad actors doing bad things, and assists that bad actor in going ahead and making an amendment or a new trust or a restatement or whatever you want to call it, and we find evidence, strong evidence, we wouldn't do this on weak evidence. There would have to be, some, I mean, a really strong prima facie case that this lawyer was involved in assisting in this wrongful act, we want to file that lawsuit against that lawyer. And that's true. That's actually a really good point because that's true of all financial elder abuse, whether it's the drafting lawyer or somebody else. It's not just the taking that is uh, liable, but you can also be assisting in the taking and be liable. That's right. Which is really interesting because it could be the lawyer, it could be a CPA, it could be somebody that's not a professional at all, but they're somehow helping right. in this scheme right. to take elders. So that's to take from elders. That's really important. Let's talk just a little bit about the red flags, okay? Because I think a lot of times when we're talking to people, so if you're not a devious person and you're not a, a, a crook, 
sometimes you might think that the things that you're seeing that look suspicious, you second-guess yourself. Am I really seeing these things? Is it really as bad as I think it is? Or we'll talk to somebody and we'll say, well, these, you know, they'll tell us certain things are happening and we'll say, well, what about these other things? And they haven't even thought of them because, of course, we've seen the worst of the worst. We've seen how people do these things. But if you haven't encountered this before, you may be surprised at just how devious and, and good people can be at unduly influencing an elder. So what are some of the red flags that come to your mind? And I'll say a few of mine. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, I digress just briefly to say that I once took the deposition of a drafting attorney, and he was a really good-looking guy. I mean, super good-looking, chiseled chin. He was an attorney made for TV, and he was well-spoken and refined. And I remember at the beginning of his deposition, I asked him, when you made this amendment for this person that transferred millions of dollars from a, an estate plan that had previously given everything equally to all their kids, and now it's all going to one person. Did you see any red flags? And that's the actual words I used. And he said, no, not one. And so when we finally, three or four hours later, got to the 12th red flag, <laughs> and he 12. confirmed to me yeah. all 12 were red flags. Yeah. And so what are some of those red flags? Well, for the bad actor in this case, there were so many phone calls to this drafting attorney's office from the bad actor that the staff, the, the secretary, and I don't mean to minimize secretaries, but she's, I'm sure she was not a lawyer. She was so concerned that she noted it in the file, that there were so many phone calls. That and, it seemed weird. And they were demanding, you know, demanding phone calls that, that provisions of the, of the amendment had to be changed and updated. And what's interesting is, and, you know, you hate to, I, I think there's mostly good lawyers out there. At least I want to believe that. But this guy doesn't remember any of that, right? He doesn't have any recollection that there were multiple phone calls and that his assistant told him, hey, I'm worried about all of this. But she was so worried about it that she wrote this down in the file. And of course, that was one of the red flags that we talked about at the deposition. That's very rare that a secretary would note, note that. That's very helpful for the elder and for our case in that situation. Right. So one of them is the bad actor is going to be aggressive about making changes. Right. And the code actually cites that as one of the actions and tactics is either making changes in secret, making changes quickly to documents, or making them at inappropriate times. Right. Which would be in the hospital. Right. That's a huge red flag. <laughs> Not only in the hospital, but when you have a, a tube down your throat and you can't talk right. and you're uh, um, not anesthetized, but what are, you're innovated? under, you're, oh. you know, yeah, you're oh, innovated, oh, you're but, sub, but you're, you're uh, under severe uh, pain medication. You're clearly not doctors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't, you can't talk. This is a case we recently had yeah. and, and somebody comes in and helps you sign a trust. Okay. That's right. a, that's a red flag. Yeah. Yeah. Right. If somebody's holding your hand yeah. while you're signing a document that leaves everything to them. Yeah. The person holding the hand. Yeah. It's almost like, here's your sign. You remember that? It's, that's <laughs> yeah. a red flag, okay? Yeah, that's a red flag, yeah. Uh, you know, so there's a, the other one I had with that same lawyer in that same case was he was meeting with his client, his client that he said was fully capacitated in his office, and he'd asked the bad actor to leave his office because that's always the story you get. Oh, no, I asked them to leave. So that mm -hmm. now whatever the elder tells me, I know is going to be fine. Yeah, right. And he said that he asked the lady a question, and she answered it and said she wanted to leave everything to the, the bad acting child. But later on in his own notes, she un, unprovoked says to him, oh, I was lying to you earlier. I really don't want to give everything. And he oh. writes it down, right? Oh, he, he documented he, that. He writes it in his notes. <laughs> but he didn't remember that. And so right. we had a lot of fun with him. That, that's a red flag. That's a huge red flag. Your, yeah. your client's lying to you. Right. And why are they lying to you? And they're confused about it because why would they lie to you? 
and then five minutes later say, oh, you know, I lied to you five because minutes ago. Because they were ago. just beat up in the car ride over to the <laughs> lawyer's office saying, you better be saying this when you go in and talk to the lawyer. But is that a red flag? <laughs> yeah, it's so a when, huge red flag. So when the lawyer says, no red flags, <laughs> right. we're now up to three red right. flags. Well, you know, it could be he's colorblind. Maybe to him those are green flags. <laughs> okay. I don't know. All right. So that's a problem. The other problem that we see that's a huge red flag is when you have somebody isolating the elder, trying to control who has access to them, when they have access to them, being on the phone at the same time as somebody else calling in. Anything where somebody just won't leave the elder alone, that's a huge red flag. Yes. uh, That there's some manipulation going on. Right. And then, of course, controlling the finances is a huge problem. And I've seen this, and I know you have too, where it could be the neighbor all of a sudden is coming in and it starts off being helpful, but then they're writing checks. To cash. (laughs) Well, first they help with the, let me just help you pay your bills. Right. Because there's a stack of bills and they aren't being Now let me help myself to some of this. (laughs) Let me help myself. (laughs) Let me pay myself and my bills. Uh, So it could be a neighbor, could be a caregiver, could be a friend, could be a family member, could be one of the children. But by the way- Could be a a more distant. I I want to be honest here. I want to be honest. So- Look, we're all human. We're laughing at these people. Right. But it's easy to get yourself trapped into one of these things, isn't right. it? Yeah, I think so. There's I think a, opportunity. There's a pool of money. Nobody's looking. It's almost like the, the monkey that got his hand caught in the cookie jar, right? Right. It's like nobody's looking. What does it hurt? I mean, I, and then you start justifying in your mind, I've been helping them. I do a lot of work. I do a lot of work for them. So you can see how they don't pe- need it. just regular old nice people even get caught up in this idea that I'm going to pay myself some money. But you need to be careful because that's financial elder abuse. Yeah, and it turns into that really quickly. And so I think when you see somebody who's controlling the finances and they're all of a sudden controlling the checkbook, they're calling up the CPA, you know, the elder's longtime CPA giving instructions. They're calling the lawyer, being demanding, saying we need to do this, that, and the other thing. They're just kind of generally taking over. That's a huge red flag. And so that's a big problem. Right. And so part of this is, is, okay, you're seeing these red flags. We've already said that trying to take action while the elder is still alive is not easy. That doesn't mean that there isn't things you could do while they're alive. You can. It's just they're not easy. Right. And they can be expensive. The other part of it, though, I think is paying attention. And so just paying attention to these red flags and not trying to second guess I mean, if your gut reaction is is that something's not quite right here, especially with a parent, you know your parent, you've been around your parent all your life, uh, most of us, and if something doesn't seem right, chances are it's probably not. Well, I would say a red flag that many people don't see is if there's three siblings and two very successful ones that are out being an, an architect and a doctor, for instance, and they're, they're doing well in life, and they have a sibling that moved back in home with mom and dad, chances are there's going to be a change to the estate plan. Right. And it's because if you think about it, the kid that moves in back home, where do they have to go? The only thing that, the only place they can live after mom and dad are gone. Is that same house. Is that same house. Right. And so you're going to see that happen. And then what if that house is expensive? Because in some areas, people bought years and years ago, and now they're in a very well-developed area. That happens a lot in the Bay Area. You right. know, you bought a house in Palo Alto in the 60s, and now it's worth buco bucks. Right. And it's the biggest asset of the estate. Right. So you're not going to be able to equalize it. There's, there's nothing else that's equal in value to that. Right. So now if one child gets the house, I guess the other ones are just out of luck. Just out of luck. So you do have to be careful of that. What? Let's talk just a little bit about, and we'll end with trust contests. So let's say you, you 
the elder's deceased and you thought you were going to get, you have two siblings, right? You thought it was going to be an equal split and you're disinherited. What are you going to, what's the next step? File a trust contest. And it's not, it could also be a will contest, right? Depending on how the assets are held. A trust or will. And so you're going to file a contest. What are your chances of success with that? Well, I don't know, Keith. I know the general rule we've been told by judges and CLEs you go to, you hear that 30% of will contests or trust contests are successful. The judges that we talk to, that we finally get an ear, sometimes before trials, we'll be uh, with a judge in chambers, and I like to ask them questions if it's not the issue in that case. If we uh, mediate with uh, retired judges who have a lot of experience, the question is, how many cases did you, uh, how many will contests or wills or trusts did you invalidate while you were on the bench? And I think Judge Steele, who I, Michael Steele, great judge out of uh, Los Angeles, he's retired now and he has a great uh, mediation service in, in Los Angeles. He looked at me and he said, Stuart, 5%. Now, wow, that's low. It's low. It could be because of just a lot of bad lawyering, or maybe there was a lot of people that didn't have lawyers. Not to say that they're not smart. It's just you can't do these cases on your own. But you know, I have to think it's more than 5%, but at times I wonder, you know, is it a lot more than 5%? And that's cases that go to trial. So of the cases that actually went to trial, he's saying maybe 5%, he actually overturned the documents. You have to remember that most cases don't go to trials right. and definitely not the, it's almost like the better the case, the less likely it is to go to trial in the that's sense right. that somebody probably is going to know that that's, that's not a case you want to try. That's right. But what are the chances that you're going to get everything you want? So let's say, let's say your case doesn't go to trial. You get a settlement. You go to somebody like Judge Seal. He's a fantastic mediator. He's very good at, at brokering a settlement. Are you going to get everything that you're entitled to? No. And, and the one thing I've learned in doing this for the last 15 years or so is that both sides have to be a little bit unhappy for it to be a successful settlement. And the other thing I've learned is, is that our side, our clients, always feel that the other clients are somehow getting something over on them and vice versa. The other side feels that we're getting something over on them. And that's where Judge Steele or a good mediator, any good mediator, that's where they make their money because they have to be able to show that it's a fair result for both sides based upon the facts that have been uh, learned in discovery and presented and so forth. And then ultimately that judge has to get those parties to, to, to agree to sign up and, and, and settle the matter, but you're not gonna get everything you want but even if you go to trial, you're not gonna get everything you want. It's rare that you go into trial and get a slam dunk and walk away saying, gosh, I sure am glad I litigated for the last three years on that matter. Yeah, even on a financial elder abuse claim, right? So you're going in on financial elder abuse, you certainly have the right to bring that claim, but you also have the burden to prove that claim. And you can think that you're right as, as rain, but that doesn't mean that you have the evidence to back it up or that the judge or jury is going to agree with you once you present that evidence because right. you have to overcome a pretty big burden. Right. So you definitely have the, the cause of action and the claim, but winning that claim isn't always the easiest thing to do, unfortunately. Right. But you still have to try. And I do want to be sensitive here and just point out that when I say that, like you would be going after your inheritance if you were disinherited because somebody exercised undue influence, which is both a claim for trust contest, but also financial elder abuse. But part of the reason you're doing that is to stick up for your, the elder. I mean, it's not just, I mean, and this is, it addresses the greedy heir issue, right? Is, oh, you, the only reason you're suing Stewart is because you're a greedy heir and you want money. Well, and, and I think you're right, 100%. I know how I feel about my parents, and if they pass, 
I want to feel good about the fact that I was their son, that I did good in their minds, and that they treated all three of their children equally. If I was disinherited, and, and, and say my sister was disinherited, and my brother was the one that got us both disinherited, I, I couldn't live with that. I couldn't live with that being the legacy of what my parents wanted. So it's not the money at all for me, at least at that point in time. I mean, money always comes into the equation at some point, but money's more a measuring stick of showing that equity again. And so if, if, we, if me and my sister ended up suing my brother and we all could settle on a division that we could all live with, well, now I feel like I'm honoring the memory of my parents, the legacy of my parents, as they felt about me and my sister, and they never would have disinherited us. And you're standing up for what your parents would have wanted if they had not been manipulated. Right. And I think that's the important point. And we hear that a lot. I mean, time and time again, we hear people say- Unprincipled. Yeah, it's not about the money. And, you know, it's, it's honestly not. Now, the money is a proxy because what else do you have? There's no other thing that we can use to set things right. That's, that's what we're limited by. Well, it's but, like a wrongful death case. If somebody's killed by the negligence of somebody else, you can't bring that person back to life. Right. The only thing you have is money to make that. And it doesn't make it. You can never replace that person, but that's the only measuring stick you have to show that there was worth and value, that that was a unique individual who is now no longer here, and there's a loss to the family that's left behind. It's the only justice that's left at that point, yeah. So um, I wanted to, do you have any other thoughts on on the issue? So really, I think we can sum up the financial elder abuse from our perspective, or at least what we talked about today. I mean, number one, I think you have to watch out for the red flags. I think that they can be out there and you shouldn't second guess yourself. And number two, when you see financial elder abuse, you certainly can report it to, and I'm going to give some sites here, a few government agencies when it comes to things like physical elder abuse, but we're talking about more financial side. Uh, there are things that you can do, and those claims do last beyond an elder's death. And I think that's the important thing, too, is that even though taking action during life is very difficult, once the elder dies, you do have rights that you can assert on behalf of that elder and on behalf of yourself in order to make things right again. Right. And I think that's the important part. But it's very, it's a, it's a very growing epidemic. We're seeing it a lot. It's in 90% of our cases. And it's very devious. I mean, it, the way that people work and the way that people ge- take assets from an elder, uh, they're getting more and more sophisticated. Can, can I make one suggestion? I know you're going to go through some sites that people can go and report. Can you also, as we're talking here, uh, include a there, there's a there's a Google search you can do, and you can pull up Mickey Rooney testify Congress. And Mickey Rooney, before he passed away, he was subject to awful physical and financial elder abuse, and he was called to testify in front of Congress about this uh, a few years back. And it was just before he passed away. And it, I'm not much of a crier, but I watched that testimony and I, I got a little teared up as I watched it. Mm-hmm. And he, you know, he talked about feeling powerless, right. not having the ability to take care of himself and having these people manipulate and, and being and, afraid. And, and this is a guy that had money and means and he had, you know, you would presume family members that would be around to keep this from happening. And yet it happened to him. Right. And, and I think you gave stats that one in 14 cases is reported. So if you get a chance, uh, look up the Mickey Rooney, Mickey Rooney Congress testimony uh, on financial elder abuse. And it's, it's eye-opening. Yeah. No, I remember watching that. It was really powerful. It was powerful stuff. Uh, the other thing you may want to check out if you have questions about financial elder abuse or want more information, uh, there's a website called Victim Connect connect.org. So that's victimconnect.org. They have some great information about elder abuse. 
You can also look up the California Adult Protective Services. That's cdss.ca.gov. And that's the state website that talks about adult protective services. Every county has their own adult protective services agency that you can report um, elder abuse to. And we talk to people all the time who do report elder abuse to adult protective services. And there's some cases where it works out really well. There's a few cases, unfortunately, where it doesn't work out so well. It just depends on the circumstances and the facts. Well, and let's be clear, too, that I think you're going to get more their attention on physical elder abuse. But if you see financial elder abuse, report it. Just report any type of abuse of an elder. You know, it doesn't always have to be physical. If it's bad enough from a financial standpoint, an investigation will be opened. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, when in doubt, report it. And there's also a site called American Society on Aging that has some great tips on preventing financial elder abuse, and that's at asaging.org. That's asaging.org at the American Society on Aging. And just one last comment. What about people come in all the time and they say, okay, this, you know, all this terrible th stuff happened. It was financial elder abuse. There was a, a bad amendment to a, a you know, a caregiver who's trying to take everything. I want to press criminal charges. Yeah, it's not going to happen. Um, and, and it's not because it shouldn't happen. It should happen, but it's not going to happen. And, and the reason is, is limited resources. Unless it's a famous case, even Mickey Rooney's case, I don't think the, the prosecuting office got involved. Maybe they did, but most cases they're not. If you call the prosecutor's office up or you try to call the police and make a police report, they're going to tell you this is a civil matter. Go figure it out. Uh, the prosecutor's office, if you call them and say, we want you to prosecute this terrible thing that happened, they're going to say, look, we've got rapes, we've got murders, we've got aggravated assaults. We're just trying to keep those going forward. We're not going to be able to get to your issue of somebody stealing some money from your mom or dad, as bad as that is. And that's why uh, there's a civil system for you. And, and civil litigants like, like you, you can't bring criminal charges. I think that's important to point out. So if somebody's been harmed by financial elder abuse, you're not allowed to bring criminal charges. The district attorney has to do that. That's right. And we recently talked to somebody that was a former FBI agent. And I think we both explained to him, look, if you go into a bank and you brought up the bank and you take just $5,000 from a right. bank, you're going to go to jail for 20 years. But if you take millions of dollars from an estate by using undue influence through a new estate plan of some kind or a new amendment or something like that, chances are you will never see the inside of a cell. I've, I've been practicing for over 18 years. I haven't seen it once. Yeah. So unfortunately, that's the grim reality of the criminal side of this. But right. you do have your rights and you definitely should consider standing up and fighting for those rights when you are unfortunately the victim of financial elder abuse. And we see it, 90% of our cases, we see it a lot. We do. So I want to thank you very much for joining us today. It's obviously a very important topic, and we'll be talking about it, I'm sure, at some point in the future. And we look forward to seeing you again next time. We'll see you next time.